It's a foggy afternoon in San Francisco in 1852. It's four years into the gold rush, and the city is a lawless frontier. I mean, rough and tumble doesn't even cut it as a descriptor. A passenger boat has just anchored at the port of San Francisco, and off walks Mary Ellen Pleasant. Mary covers her dark, wavy hair with a bonnet, grabs her things, and starts to walk down the docks. It's her first time out west, so she takes it all in. The streets are filled with mud, and saloons seem to be the only buildings around. She thinks, what did I just walk into? When she stepped off the boat, there were 40 or 50,000 people in San Francisco. There were six men to every woman. This is Sushil Bibbs, a filmmaker and researcher from the Bay Area. There were six murders every five days. And the locals, they would shoot each other up coming out of the saloons. It would burn down constantly and people would have to build it back up. It was a rough place. It was too late for Mary to turn back. And even if she could, it wouldn't solve her problem. She was a woman on the run. She'd already fled three other cities, and with the type of work Mary did, it was only a matter of time before she'd be on someone's radar. Well, when she arrives in San Francisco, this fugitive slave law arrives in San Francisco. They were arresting people off of the streets and back into slavery. The people on the dock assume Mary is just another white woman moving out west to try her luck at striking it rich. But they're wrong. Mary Ellen Pleasant is a free black woman, and her life's mission is to help those who weren't free yet. She's a conductor for the Underground Railroad, and she's here to expand it out west. And she's going to use her ability to pass as her superpower to get it done. From Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is They Did That, a different kind of history show. I'm Takara Small. On today's episode, the story of Mary Ellen Pleasant, the chameleon, double agent abolitionist, and woman of mystery, who shook up the West Coast in the name of liberation. Mary Ellen Pleasant's life has been shrouded in legend and mystery. Like, there are dozens of accounts, all of them one-upping the next. We don't really know what's totally true and what's not. But that's partly because Mary wanted it that way. Her mission was survival by any means necessary, even if that meant scrambling the details of her own life. Today, we're going to give you everything we know about this extraordinary woman with the help of researcher Sushil Bibbs. Sushil has spent over 20 years untangling the facts and myths to set the record straight. The reason I started to do this was in looking in this, there were many contradictions about her. There was a book, and it came out in the 1950s. One part of it is about a woman who's a heroine whom we really need to know about. The other part is about somebody who's like a mafia boss, and that upset me. 
So I said, no, we need our heroines. We need to know these people, and we need to know what's true and what isn't. Mary's story starts in the 1840s on the East Coast, where she's married to a black man named James Smith. On the outside, this couple, both black and free, they lead a pretty normal life. But behind closed doors, James is a covert operative for the Underground Railroad. James and Mary both work from their home in Boston to help freedom seekers find their way north. Well, the 1840s was, you know, dead in slavery. And so we were finding people enslaved and wanting to get above the Ohio River and trying to get into Canada and trying to get into Philadelphia because these areas would allow them to be free. Escapes had been going on well before then. But by the 1840s, the Underground Railroad had grown. It was now a complex and organized system full of conductors and operatives coordinating all over the North. James helps freedom seekers in Boston and down in Virginia where they own land. And not just any land, but a plantation. If you're thinking, wait, what the F? Black people owning a plantation? It's all smoke and mirrors. James was a wealthy black merchant who Sushil says passed as Cuban when it served him. Now, passing is a very complicated legacy, but for James, it was a tool to move his abolitionist work forward. He used his privilege to buy people from their enslavers and give them their freedom. The folks he quote-unquote bought posed as workers on the plantation until they could escape to the North. Mary is an equal in this duo. She gets in on the double agent life too. Mary and James often made trips down to Virginia to continue their work. In their area, plantations are everywhere. And the main form of entertainment for Southerners? Horse racing. Rich white planters would come from miles around to attend these races and watch enslaved black jockeys race. Mary sees an opportunity to help. She would pretend to be a jockey. She had a cohort, a white cohort, and he pretended to be the owner. And they would go down and she would tell people about escapes. I can imagine Mary on race days getting ready to play the part. She stuffs her long hair into a cap and pulls the brim down just above her eyes. She has on men's clothing that she borrows from her husband or maybe one of the decoy workers on the plantation. Down at the race, while the white folks are busy cheering and hollering, Mary slinks around and talks to the black jockeys while they're waiting to race. She tells them the plans for upcoming escapes and when to be ready. In 1848, Mary's husband, James, dies. This event changes her life in more ways than one. She inherited his plantation, and she inherited $45,000. She was a very rich woman. Okay, let me do a little number crunching. 45000 bucks in 1848 is equal to $1.75 million today. Mary wasn't just rich. She was richy rich. With this fortune, she could have chosen to give up the dangerous work and live a life of luxury. But James gave her a final mission. His instructions? Use this money to keep supporting Black people. 
Mary would spend the next two years running the plantation, helping more freedom seekers up north. But this line of work was always precarious. Word gets out about the jockey helping folks escape. And now Mary was public enemy number one. Patrols started to comb the area, so Mary had to pack up and go. They were looking for the jockey. They had heard of what she was doing, so she fled first to Nantucket, and then she fled to New Orleans. It's 1851 in New Orleans. Steamboats make their slow crawl down the Mississippi River. The sycamore trees tower over the city streets, and in the French Quarter, Mary Ellen Pleasant walks the dirt roads, her trail lit by dancing flames of gas lamps. For a rescuer like Mary on the run, New Orleans is a move in a dicey direction. The city is the biggest market for enslaved people in the Deep South. And with the Fugitive Slave Act passing just one year earlier, Black folks, free and enslaved, and rescuers of any kind, were being hunted like crazy by patrols. Mary wants to continue her abolitionist work, but the odds weren't in her favor. Lucky for her, though, she was told about someone who could help. Mary makes her way to St. Anne Street to the cottage of Marie Laveau, the legendary voodoo priestess of New Orleans. The myth, the legend, Marie Laveau. The voodoo queen of New Orleans. Selfless servant of the people. A well-connected entrepreneur, nurse, and community leader, Marie Laveau was the person free and enslaved Black folks in New Orleans could depend on. People came from all over to Marie Laveau to get aid in ways that were not available to people otherwise in New Orleans. And as a take-no-shit voodoo priestess, Marie Laveau was a woman who commanded respect from anyone who crossed her path. And that was powerful. Marie Laveau really organized voodoo in New Orleans, so she is the one who pulled it together. Voodoo was banned, and constables were after anybody who came in. She was known to walk right into Congo Square and dare anybody to touch her, and did they know? All sorts of tales swirled around Marie Laveau, and people feared her because of it. But not Mary Ellen Pleasant. She was down to learn whatever she could from this powerhouse. From what we've gathered, their time together was brief, about six months. But what Mary got from that friendship would launch her abolitionist work to insane new levels. Marie Laveau's system was simple. If you want to help as many folks of the community as you can, you work for white people, listen to their secrets, and then use them. Marie had it down to a science. She would serve the rich people very lovingly so that they would be holding to her. And she would then place workers in those families, both getting favors for having helped those families, as well as having secrets from those families. Now, why do I tell you about this? Because that is exactly what Mary Pleasant learned from her. This is something Sushil has coined the Marie Laveau model. Hold on to it. You'll hear it come up again later in this episode. Now, in what I imagine to be an 1850s-style masterclass, Marie Laveau would invite Mary over to her place in the French Quarter and talk her through the process step by step. Now, step one, gain the trust of a white family. 
Step two, get a job as a domestic or some other kind of worker in their house. Step three, eavesdrop like crazy, but make it discreet. Then she'd move to part two, how to choose your informants, how to lead your team, and finally, how to keep the whole con together. While she's learning the Marie Laveau model, Mary gets a job to blend in and sees an opportunity to revisit an old trick. Laveau gets her job as a cook on a plantation, and then she starts being the jockey again. Working at a plantation meant Mary could likely do her abolitionist work from the inside. Her being a free woman and fair-skinned meant she was probably separated from many enslaved people on the grounds. But she was close enough to maybe communicate and coordinate with them in secret. And taking up as a jockey again? I mean, they do say old habits die hard. But her jockey past would come back to haunt her, and it would end her time in New Orleans. They're looking for the job. Marie Laveau has told her, if this happens, you come see me, I will help you. So she goes to Marie Laveau. Marie Laveau puts her on a steamer to San Francisco. Now, thousands of miles away in San Francisco, Mary Ellen Pleasant is on the run again. But this time will be a little different. She has her fortune, the Marie Laveau model, and plenty of experience in helping people in need. How she puts it all together in the wild, wild west? Well, that's after the break. Mary Ellen Pleasant was a black conductor of the Underground Railroad on the run. But when her boat arrived in San Francisco, She walked off as someone else, a white woman named Ellen Smith. Her goal was the same, find ways to help as many black people as she could with the money she had. But a new city meant new people, new rules, new dangers. First, she had to learn the lay of the land, but she wasn't going to waste time while she did it. She had her money, so she started investing it. She would do a silver and gold exchange in South America. She would take silver and buy gold and put the gold in, and it would appreciate. So she multiplied her money for a while. Mary got to know San Francisco, the mud-filled city with more saloons than real infrastructure. She also learned the disappointing reality of Black life in her new home. She found a society that was completely separate. Black people did not have opportunities. They didn't even get to be cooks in houses. By 1852, about 2,000 Black folks, mostly men, had made their way out West. And a lot of these newcomers landed in San Francisco. Many were free men who worked the gold mines. Others had escaped enslavement using the Underground Railroad. And then there were men who'd been enslaved illegally and were working the mines for their enslavers' gain. There were people who needed support, needed resources to start a new life, people who needed to be freed. Mary had to figure out how, though, not as herself, but as her new white persona, Ellen Smith. She started this idea of boarding houses on the Marie Laveau model. She thought, aha, there are these young men. She cooked, she knew all these wonderful recipes, and she would be a steward. 
The young men Sushil's talking about are the ones on the other side of town. White men dominated the population of San Francisco. They were scruffy, dirt-covered miners who walked the streets with shovels and buckets in hand. But there were also businessmen, bankers, and merchants. They avoided the mines and instead focused on making deals and big money moves. Anywhere else, their status would have divided them. But here, they had something in common. They all lived in flop houses. Enter Mary with her bright idea. As Ellen Smith, she would be the friendly white landlady who offered lodging, hot meals, and care. With six men to every one woman in San Francisco, they desperately needed and would pay for it. She's wealthy enough that she doesn't need to take on this work, but this job means she could move her mission forward. Mary hits the ground running. She builds properties around the city, and she separates the boarding homes by wealth. Now, let's review the Marie Laveau model. Step one, serve rich folks lovingly and gain their trust. Step two, place workers in their homes and listen to their secrets. Well, she had the business-savvy dudes in places of their own, so she was off to a good start there. But Mary Ellen Pleasant was a one-woman team. Step two would need some rejigging. She'd have to do the snooping herself. She planted herself in the exclusive ones and listened to the investment strategies of these young financial men who were in it. Whatever they said to invest in, she invested in. Mary had thousands and thousands of dollars at her disposal. So the more she overheard, the more investments she could make. I can picture her walking through the boarding house at mealtimes. She greets the guys with a smile and asks them about their days. And as she walks from table to table with food and drinks, she fine-tunes her ears and carefully scans the conversations in the room. These miners, their clothes are filthy and there's no one to tend to them. Laundries are going to be the next big thing. Every day more boats arrive with more and more people. They need places to stay. Real estate's the way to go. I heard about this Wells Fargo company. They're managing the mail and making a fortune. Maybe the men think she's too busy to notice, or that she doesn't get it because she's a woman. But they let the investment tips fly. Mary uses the best of the bunch and watches the success roll in. She makes a killing. She bought laundries. She bought land. She bought farms. She realized that if she cornered all these markets, she would have anything that people wanted that were paying top price for she could supply it. And she was this, you know, an amazing entrepreneur. As Ellen Smith, Mary Ellen Pleasant became a force in San Francisco. She was a badass entrepreneur, a beloved boarding house steward. She earned a lot of trust in the white community. But just like her time in Virginia and New Orleans, she could never truly stay away from what mattered to her most, her hands-on abolitionist work. You see, Mary Ellen Pleasant wasn't just sitting back, watching her money grow, and pulling off the ultimate grift as Ellen Smith at this time. She really leaned into the whole double life thing. In the Black community, she was known as Mrs. Pleasant, and she was down on the docks rescuing escaped slaves. Mary had kept up her work on the Underground Railroad. We don't know the ins and outs of how escapes were organized this far out west, 
But what we do know is that ships were a primary method of travel for freedom seekers. Mary would meet new arrivals at the docks and kind of like a social worker, help them get situated with housing. But her support didn't stop there. Once people were there, she helped them start their livery stable business. She invested in a saloon. She invested in a library. She even had a little bank for them. Mary employed folks in her businesses and even used her connections to get Black folks jobs that they'd once been denied, like cooks. The Black citizens, they called her the Black City Hall. They didn't know how she went and solved their problems. They just knew that she did and had the means to do it. And they let Mary know that they were grateful for her and all that she did to help. Their newspapers in the African-American community are replete. I mean, there are just dozens of them talking about what she does in all the different churches and all the different societies and all the different things for African-Americans. Mary had come a long way and had done so much of this on her own. In 1852, she arrived on the shores of San Francisco, a woman on the run. By 1865, Mary was a self-made millionaire and dynamic changemaker. She'd spent 13 years leading a double life out West. But big changes were happening in the United States. The Emancipation Proclamation was signed, the Civil War was over, and the enslaved were free. These changes started to make Mary wonder if it was possible to let this white persona go. Soon, a census was making the rounds in San Francisco. On it was a question about race. Maybe feeling empowered by the changing tide in the country, or just wanting to finally relish in her truth, Mary Ellen Pleasant makes her boldest decision yet. She identifies as her real self. She always had Mary E. Pleasant, entrepreneur, or Mary E. Pleasant, something having to do with her money. But now she has Mary E. Pleasant, colored woman. For the first time in her life, Mary Ellen Pleasant would have the chance to enjoy her blackness, her wealth, and her power out in the open. But not everyone was happy about it, and they were hell-bent on letting her know. More on that after the break. After coming out as her true self in 1865 and leaving her double life behind, Mary Ellen Pleasant enjoys a three-decade run of just being able to be. She continues to do good work for the community, she funds housing projects in the building of new schools, and she supports women of all backgrounds who began to come out west to start a new life. Mary even leans into the soft life and says goodbye to her jobs in the boarding houses. She builds herself a big old 30-room mansion that spans two city blocks and lets people serve her. But the good times wouldn't last. By the end of the 19th century, a creeping hostility toward Black folks enjoying new freedoms post-war had ignited and spread all over the country. We're talking about laws being repealed. We're talking about Black governments disappearing. We're talking about a a pulling in of the society to take their country back. And the West Coast was no exception. Mary Ellen Pleasant, elderly and in the last years of her life, found herself on the bad side of the white people she'd been living among. They started to question her success and influence. 
She was put under a microscope and folks started to dig into her past. In 1899, it all came out in the open in a series of scathing newspaper articles in the white papers. Their mission? Take her down. They let the dirt fly when they began publicly referring to her with the vile name of Mammy Pleasant. Mammy is an incomprehensible mixture, a generous giver and taker. She's the smoothest talker and the shrewdest woman in San Francisco. She's childish in her vanities, diabolical in her schemings, a woman to whom the feeling of power is the breath of life, and one who realizes that it is money that gives power. An intellectual giant, but a moral idiot. And the dragging didn't stop there. They begin to draw connections to her time with Marie Laveau, the voodoo priestess. And now Mary was accused of being some manipulative witch. Her tricks were very simple and must have been the remnant of some myth handed down to Mammy when she was little more than a pickaninny. She would draw grotesque images and then singe them with burning cock's feathers, at the same time pronouncing her wishes in a mumbling voice and asking some unknown deity to help her out with her numerous enterprises. So Shields says this last piece, aptly titled The Queen of the Voodoos, was the final blow to Mary Ellen Pleasant's name. The Queen of the Voodoos came out and ruined her reputation with the public. Just knocked it out. But Mary didn't slink away. She faced the criticism head on. If they were going to share their words with her, she was going to do it too. And her message let it be known that they'd picked the wrong woman to mess with. This is a snippet from the memoir she wrote and self-published. My cause is a cause of freedom and equality for myself and for my people. And I'd rather be a corpse than a coward. If I'm dead, all right then. But as long as I'm living, I'm going to fight. And I'm going to fight to win. And the newspapers, they can say what they want about me. When I'm in a fight, any byplay doesn't faze me. Mary did her best to speak her truth and fight for her name. She went as far as writing a series of memoirs. But the times had changed, and so did her power. Her enemies made sure she wasn't successful. She establishes the pandex of the press, which is a little newspaper. She has this first part of her memoir published, and then her enemy bought the press. And the rest of it was never published. I can't help but wonder what would have happened if she'd succeeded. We would have Mary's story in her own words, and not just the rumors and hearsay that have survived her. But if this show has taught me anything, it's that we all need to be able to tell our own stories. And then we need other people to pick those stories up and pass them on. Next time on They Did That. There were thousands of people who were experiencing very significant forms of discrimination on a daily basis across the country. We wanted to be making a statement that the president needed to sign this law. They Did That is presented by me, Takara Small. Dramatic readings by Rob Dozier, Grant Irving, and Kyra Asabe Bonsu. This episode was written and produced by Tiffany Walker. Serena Chow is our associate producer, Our editor is Jasmine Romero. Executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. 
Engineering and sound design by Rick Kwan. Lily Hadley is our production coordinator. And our theme song and other original music is by Cedric Wilson. <laughs>